This episode of the LARB Radio Hour is supported in part by the California Arts Council, a state agency. Learn more at www.arts.ca.gov. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hey, Medea. This week, we have a real L.A. We have a real L.A. show. Yep. Yeah. We spoke with Janet Fitch about the writer Kate Braverman. Yes, Kate Braverman is a classic L.A. writer. She passed away recently, um, and we wanted to have Janet Fitch come in to talk about Kate and her literary legacy and also her relationship with Kate. She knew her. and She was her student. Right. Right. And then following that, we're talking with someone we both know well. Yes, the editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books, Tom Lutz. About his new novel, Born Slippy. That's right. It's a debut novel, though... As listeners will hear, Tom has thought of himself as a novelist for many years, while we have thought of him as an editor for many years. <laughs> <laughs> and also a, non- a nonfiction writer. Correct. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. It's yes. not like it's his first book. It's but... not. No, most certainly isn't his first book. He's written many books before. But he, yeah, he came to the show to talk about his novel, Born Slippy. <laughs> Love the title. <laughs> <laughs> it's a reference to a song, actually. I, I didn't know that. But I, had, um, I looked it up, and it's a song from the Train Spotting soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's weird because actually my husband calls one of his best friends Slippy. Oh. That's just their pet nickname for each other. So when I was reading Tom's book, he like sent his friend the picture of it saying like, they found us out about oh, us. Oh, well, yeah, he can send him a whole song if he wants to. Oh. I think they've been found out for many a year now. Gotcha. Huh. Yeah. Let's listen to first our interview with Janet Fitch speaking about Cape Raverman. Let's do it. We have Janet Fitch in the studio with us today. Janet is the author of the number one bestseller, White Oleander, as well as Paint It Black. Her epic novels of the Russian Revolution came out recently. They are called The Revolution of Marina M. and The Chimes of a Lost Cathedral. Janet is here to discuss another writer, actually, Kate Braverman, who was a Los Angeles writer that Janet knew intimately. Welcome, Janet, to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Janet... Kate Braverman passed away in October, but her memorial was recently held at Beyond Baroque, and I know you attended and spoke. I'm wondering what the reoccurring thing that people said about her that kind of stayed with you from that evening was. Well, I think she spanned several decades of Los Angeles literature. So there were people who knew her in the 70s in the poetry scene around Beyond Baroque, to people who worked with her on her last book, published by City Lights recently, A Good Day for Seppuku. So I think that what people talked about first was the span of her career and the number of kind of intersecting circles of L.A. writing, you know, poetry and fiction that there had been. And many people who had worked with her, I'd worked with her, and what almost everyone said was just how uncompromising she was. 
we live in a time where everybody gets a medal. With Kate Braverman, not everybody gets a medal. <laughs> you know, person after person was able to speak to that, how ferociously she protected literature from mm-hmm. mediocrity. She felt like that was her single-minded mission. People remember her humor. She was very, very funny. She was extremely eccentric, strong opinions about things that she would just turn around and do exactly the opposite. What was your relationship to her? How did you know her? I was an admirer at first. She was the only writer that I knew who really wrote about the Los Angeles that I recognized growing up here. Hmm. It was What was that Los Angeles the, that you recognized? It might have been physically Hollywood, but it wasn't Hollywood in the national imagination. It was crummy, sitting on the bus bench, being harassed by who knows what as you're waiting for the bus, and it's ill parents and living in a, you know, depressed situation. And L.A. is a very tough place in real life. And she wrote about that, and she wrote about it with great beauty and attention to the ignored corners of beauty. And she had beauty in the language, which is what really attracted me to her. And then how did you meet her? Well, I was stalking her. I, uh, <laughs> she had just published Palm Latitudes, and she was doing a reading at Small World Books in Venice Beach. Mm-hmm. And I asked her whether she was still teaching her private workshop, which I was pretty legendary. And and she said, I never work with anyone unless they've taken my class at UCLA Extension. So I was like, oh, okay. So another hurdle. So I had to pass that hurdle of this very intense class where people did run out crying. Actually, somebody who went with me was the victim. She was pretty ferocious in her sense of what should be on the page the engagement with the page, the seriousness of this thing called literature. And I did the whole weekend course, and then she called me and said, I I run two workshops on Saturdays. One, they bring Danish, and the other one, they just bring their egos, and you're <laughs> in the second one. <laughs> <laughs> she put you in the second one? Do you think it was because of your ego? Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, when you're trying to be a writer, if you don't take yourself seriously, no one else is going to. Mm-hmm. I think the seriousness of purpose almost comes before the writing, and I think she recognized that in people. It marked just about everybody in that workshop. And so did you, your book, White Oleander, is that something you were workshopping with Kate? I wrote the short story that that was based on, and I began it in that workshop. And I, she stopped the workshop, she left town, and I finished it on my own. I worked with her for two years. So I learned kind of the tools of the trade that I didn't have. I'd never been in a workshop where somebody set the bar that high. If it was mediocre, if it was bad, if it was boring, if there were cliches in it, I mean, you would leave in tears. There just was no faking it, fudging it. How did she communicate that? (laughs) She'd say, like, I'd seen her throw people's pages up in the air and go, what am I supposed to do with that? You know, she'd say, um, 
this is a crime against the page. So it was very clear. But if something was really good, she'd read it again. She would read it out loud slowly, and she'd say, now that's real writing. You really, it was very clear how you were doing. It was like a little cult almost, you know? We just lived, eat, and breathed writing. And in terms of writers that inspired her, she's not from Los Angeles, right? And yeah, she was. Oh, she was. Yeah. But yet she felt very, it seems like from what I've read, she didn't feel like she was quite of the city or... She didn't feel like the literary community here embraced her. Oh, that's probably true. She was somebody who loved and hated L.A., you know, as you would love and hate someone who never really embraced you or appreciated you. She was always the underdog, and she would create that situation if it was lacking. <laughs> and, you know, I think that she was an L.A. writer, and she felt that very deeply, and she felt a lack of regard for her work. I think she very much felt like sort of the Gertrude Stein thing, you know, I am the only genius. And so it was very, she didn't play well with others. She was part of a triumvirate at the Beyond Baroque in the poetry workshop with Laurel Ann Bogan and Wanda Coleman. And they had all been very close, but she wasn't somebody who could take any kind of criticism hmm. for herself. It had to come from her. She just, you know, and I know so many people like that, so it's not a judgment upon her. It's just the way she was. I went to the memorial, and one of the interesting things about it was there was a sense of an almost cultish relationship that it seemed like her students had with her. And aside from that, too, that she was quite obviously a difficult person in many ways. How did you relate to those two things after you were a professional writer in your own right and were no longer a student of hers? Yeah, see, for writers, I don't really care if they're nice, get-along people. It's not necessary for me. You know, it's all about what they were doing on the page. I think she had more of a community than she could recognize. It seemed um, like it, yeah. And I think that in the story of L.A. literature, that she's very much a part of that story. What books of hers really stick with you? Or if someone was going to read Kate Braverman for the first time, what would you recommend? That's such an interesting question. First of all, I wanted to answer the question about her influences. Mm -hmm. She admired... And these are sort of some of my heroes, too. So what draws you to people is a common where they see their source. She loved Robert Stone. She loved Malcolm Lowry. She loved Neruda. She would bring in examples from and teach from these people. And she was a poet, primarily, I think, writing fiction. But the things that she was interested in were the poetics. Mm -hmm. So of her work, the you know many volumes, I have the poetry and the fiction, and she had like eight or nine volumes of fiction and maybe five of poetry. Her short stories were in Best American, O. Henry, the short story, Tall Tales from the Kong Delta, Pagan Night. Of the novels... I have an affection for Lithium from a Day. It's the first one. It's the one that drew me to her as a young person. And her poetry collection, Milk Run, 
But the one that I keep returning to is the incantation of Frida Kay, which is a reimagining of Frida Kahlo dying high on morphine and just her interior life. And it was such an interesting projection of Kate onto Frida. And it was like this internal conversation between these two women. And I thought that she was able to say so much about herself through Frida. And I think she was able to talk about issues in Frida Kahlo's life that the hagiography doesn't really talk about much. Hmm. Tensions with Diego, what that must have been like. And it's just beautiful. The language, her language was poetic. And she cared a lot more about that than she cared about the classic elements of story and structure and all that. It struck me as you were saying that she was as close with people like Wanda Coleman and the other people who were part of the literary scene in Los Angeles. And I'd never thought of this before in this way, but it was a sort of matriarchy that was in L.A. at the time in the literary world. Like, you know, you had Eve Babbitts also. Joan Didion was sort of around. (laughs) What a rare thing to have had women sort of at the top of their game. Interesting. Now, Didion gave her a quote for Mm. Lithium from Medea, so recognized that. I think that there was, at the time, I don't think that that matriarchal line was really appreciated. Mm -hmm. You know, the guys were the poets, and then there are these kind of oddball goddesses that didn't really run the circles, didn't really make the rules. They were just sort of around. And only in retrospect do we see, you know, kind of what was really there. One of the really fine L.A. poets, Harry Northrup, was there at the memorial, and he read, and that was just beautiful. It was great to see him. I think it's hard now because I don't know if we imagine like an L.A. literature scene anymore. It seems to me that many writers who live here are kind of recognized nationally, and it doesn't seem kind of as distinct, maybe. That's just my feeling. and that, interesting. That you think, oh, in the 20, 30 years ago, it was more insular. And when I saw the lineup, for instance, for the memorial, I was thinking, wow, this is like as L.A. lit as it gets. You know, these people are, you know, they're stars here. I don't know if they're totally recognized elsewhere. Do you ever not miss those days exactly, but when you think of them, is there like a strong image or place or anything that you remember? I see it as kind of family circles, Hmm. L.A. literature. I disagree that there's not an L.A. literary scene here. You know, I know L.A. writers who are here and writing about L.A. and continue to unlock interesting facets of the city and the region that nobody else is writing about. And often we've been in workshops together or Maybe somebody I've been in workshop with now has their own workshop, so I get to know their students. I'm sort of like an aunt to those people and then a grandmother to the people who they're working with. And there are these like loosely connected family groups in L.A. Mm. coming out of UCLA Extension, coming out of Riverside, coming out of certainly Kate's workshop. I'll know those people all my life and their children and grandchildren. What do you think— we can think about as Kate's legacy, I think, in terms of what she left to the literary world. Oh, that's lovely. I would say language. 
I'd say that there is an element of Los Angeles writing that is for the ear as much as for the eye and really cares about the beauty of the line that I don't see anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I see that as coming from Kate, this insistence on the beauty of the sentence, the beauty of the image, a lushness. You know, it's not the Raymond Carver school. It's not what had happened in the 80s in the nation. And it's not this cut to the chase idea that a book should be just Oh, this wild ride start, you know, on page and go 200 pages and there you go. But this idea of the limitless space of the interior, and that's a feminist thing. You can look at the writing of Anais Nin, very interior, very interested in kind of these subtle currents between people. I think Kate was, she used to quote Neruda that it's not the net, it's the air that falls through the net that she's interested in, not the structure and the stuff of fiction, but the sound and the... We used to read out loud in workshop. It wasn't about reading on the page and then bringing your notes and talking about that. It's the person whose work it was read aloud, and we would mark on the page as they read. So it's all about the sound of it. And that marks L.A. literature, I think. That's a lovely place to end. Thank you so much, Janet, for coming in and talking with us. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Janet Fitch. She was in the studio with us to talk about another L.A. writer, Kate Braverman, who passed away recently. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Janet Fitch about the late Kate Braverman. We now turn to our conversation with Tom Lutz, editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books and author of the novel Born Slippy. We have Tom Lutz in the studio with us today. Tom Lutz is a writer of books, articles, and screenplays, the founder of the Los Angeles Review of Books, and is now the Distinguished Professor at UC Riverside. His books include the American Book Award winner Doing Nothing, the New York Times notable books Crying and American Nervousness in 1903, as well as the travel memoirs and The Monkey Learned Nothing and Drinking Mare's Milk on the Roof of the World. He has a new novel out, a debut novel, actually. It's called Born Slippy. And Tom, thank you so much for coming today. Great to be back. It's I'm an honor. Hour. Oh, yeah. Honor to you have didn't you. mention that he's also the former host of the show. That's right. Yeah. Yes. The founder of the show, not just the founder of the Los Angeles Review of Books, the founder of the show, as well as everything that the Los Angeles Review of Books does. So it's kind of amazing to have you here in the flesh. <laughs> <laughs> After all of that, I finally showed up for work. One day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tom. I'm so in awe of all that you do. And um, we were talking earlier before we started taping. I asked you, because I know you're also like a very prolific writer. Um, so I wondered how long it took you to write this novel. And you said there was a good story behind that. Well, I guess I shouldn't have. I, I may have oversold it. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought of myself as a novelist since I was a teenager. Uh-huh. Like that's my, my secret identity. Because you were writing novels or just because mm. you loved reading books? I was planning on writing novels. 
I was, I just knew that I would become a novelist one day. And I thought that the way you did that was you had really interesting experiences. So I figured, well, the first part of my life, I'll get the interesting experiences. And then, you know, one day I will write the novels. And I just never kind of sat down. I started a couple when I was younger, but I never sat down for very long. You know, I was cooking in restaurants and, and working as a carpenter. And I, and I got a job cooking breakfast and lunch at a little college. And the financial aid guy told me that he could let me go to that school. It was the University of Dubuque in Dubuque, Iowa, that I could go to that school for free because he could just give me a Pell Grant that I would then give back to him. I said, okay. And when I started going to school, I realized that there were these people called professors <laughs> and they read books for a living. And I thought, this is for me. So I've basically been in school ever since. Right. I did the undergrad. I did grad school. I got my first teaching job. I got my first professorship. And I've, you know, been been in the academic world ever since. And as part of that, the novel went very back burner because I had to write my dissertation and I had to write my second book, uh, you know, to get promoted and all of that. So I had to, I was just on the publisher parish wheel and I was enjoying, I mean, I like, I liked writing those books, but in the literary critical world, writing novels is seen as a kind of somewhat disgraceful hobby for a scholar to have. Right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Daya da is not Very much so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think unless you're writing academic work, everything else is everything else. really yeah. extracurricular. It's so interesting to me because, you know, if you're spending your career studying novels, how yes. could it be looked down upon to, to write them? If they're so worthy of study, why would you think it less accomplished to write one. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're a media scholar and you start writing television shows, you, you, you would have the same problem. Uh -huh. You know, it's just that scholarship considers itself superior to its object. It's a kind of tragedy. It's a tragedy for English departments because it, it makes for a really screwy relationship between creative writing and scholarly faculties. And it's, uh, it's bad in every way. In every way, I, I meant I wasn't writing my novel. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But I was still planning on it. And then right around the time I started LARB, I had a conversation with a guy. He told me a story that made me th think, oh, my God, this guy is my character. Maybe just as a quick, just for listeners who right. haven't read the book, sure. a, a quick summary of the book and its main two characters. So, the, so it's, the book is around a guy named Frankie, who is... Frank, please. Fra oh, sorry. <laughs> That's right. He doesn't like Frankie. <laughs> I can't believe I did that. <laughs> yeah. I immediately think of him as Frankie. And his is sort of an evil counterpart named Dimitri, who he meets as a very, uh, both are young men, essentially, though Frank is a little bit older than Dimitri, um, on a construction project in Connecticut. And Dimitri seems to lack, well, let's see, like a moral center of any kind. <laughs> Any morality at Any all. Mor yeah. yeah. yeah no, not the slightest moral notion. Right. Yeah. Yes. And he goes on to make a lot of money and let's say hijinks ensue. <laughs> the mm -hmm. most violent of hijinks ensue from there. So I'm assuming the person that you met who inspired the villain mm -hmm. was the inspiration for Dimitri, this character in the book. Yes, okay. exactly. And Dimitri is from England right. and this guy was from England, you know, different city and everything, but but uh, also a Brit. And I thought he was hilarious and mm -hmm. horrifying at the same time. When I finished the book, I thought he might be recognizable. 
uh-huh. to people because he has certain uh, things that he says that he might still be saying. He was okay. saying them a lot. Um, when you so met I, him. So I sent him, so I sent him a manuscript and okay. he read it and he said, it's excellent, Tommy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you think... <laughs> he loved it. <laughs> Do you think he recognized himself and and um, was kind of happy to see him? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He said, uh-huh. uh, I, "I feel that you've you've imputed a few crimes to me that I didn't actually commit," okay. um, which is good because he kills a lot of people. He so, does. Yeah. Um, and and you know, I didn't. I, there's nothing. He didn't tell me any stories about killing people. Okay. But and was he someone who was in the financial world? Yes. Yeah. Working at a bank in Asia. Uh, oh. So there are, in fact, many similarities taken. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. There were enough that I that I thought I should I should run it by him. Okay. Um, and why this? Why did this character sort of spur? Because if something had been on the back burner for so long, you meet a compelling guy. Why? What was so compelling about him that you were like, you know what? Let's pull this novel back out. The various novels that I had started before that, I had started with, um, you know, plot ideas, structural mm-hmm. ideas formal ideas. I'd started them, you know, for lots of different reasons. And then this one I thought, you know, at, at that point I started thinking, and it's partly from listening to people talk. And it was also partly the effect of living in Hollywood. Mm. Um, I thought I probably should listen to what these folks are saying. Hollywood screenwriters are very, very smart about structure, yes. very, very smart right. about character, very smart about scene, very smart about, right. All of the, you know, the building blocks of the, of the novel. And, uh, and, and there was more and more talk around me at that time of character mm. as the essence of cinematic art. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. It was, you know, partly, uh, you know, indie cin- cinema versus blockbuster cinema. Character versus plot. Right, correct, character, yeah. character driven rather than spectacle driven and that kind of thing. I think that, that I had decided before I had this conversation with this guy that, that I was looking for my characters and mm. he just showed up. It's interesting because this book in some ways reminded me of The Talented Mr. Ripley. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but, but instead of, you know, instead of people fleeing the, the villain, I mean, with, obviously in Highsmith's novel, he becomes the protagonist. But mm-hmm. in this case, it's like someone who is, you know, a sociopath and is, just kicks around. So him and, him and Frank have an interesting relationship in that Frank seems like a good kind of honest guy but he has affected onto a, a criminal and like an utter misogynist and this guy drags him into terrible things yes um but he also drags him into the story at the same time i mean he yep. is the motor of this story i guess thinking of it from a character point of view maybe we could also talk about frank and why he continues to spend time with Dimitri even after Dimitri you know takes money from him and does terrible things in front of you know his his girlfriends and I don't what what does the variety of files you know yes, yeah, right. yeah belittles yeah. him by calling him Frankie I yeah. mean uh and yeah I, I'm also interested in there's this kind of um there's the, the time and place seem to also be important part of the novel in that mm. we keep on going to the year 2000 when it's kind of like and they're building a house together mm-hmm. uh frank and dimitri and there's this kind of like edenic quality in the beginning of their relationship right um and then it's like global capital you know interjects uh so you you definitely align a lot of stars um 
but maybe we could talk about all of that. Okay. I know that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a tall order. One, one part first, maybe? Do, do one part let's first. Let's do yeah. Frank first. Yeah, let's do okay. Frank first. Why yeah. is he staying with the sociopath? Yeah, Frank, I think that the, the question of Frank's ongoing attraction to Dimitri is the mystery, right? The, the, at, at, some, at some kind of thriller plot level, the mystery is about Dimitri. But at the, at the character level, the mystery is, is Frank's fascination with Dimitri. And there, and there were a lot of things that I thought of myself as doing, you know, maybe not entirely at the start, but certainly by the end of, the, you know, the, the 53rd draft. I really wanted to kind of get at the whole, the essence of the buddy genre, mm-hmm. right? Buddy, buddy novel, buddy film, the essence of the noir, of noir as a genre and the kind of homoeroticism in, in noir. And kind of, you know, just kind of heighten all of that a little bit and um, make it a little bit more explicit than it is in Chandler, but not so explicit that either of them have to quite deal with it. And I wanted to have something to say about how everyday misogyny continues to be created right? in, a, in a world in which, you know, I remember the first time that my students told me that there was no more, no need for feminism anymore was maybe in the eighties uh, in a class because, you know, it's all women have accomplished everything now. It's everybody's equal. It's all fine. Right. And that happened again at some point in the nineties and again, at some point in the aughts. I hope right? it was all the same group of students coming back. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Trying to finish their degrees. So, you, know, uh, you know what, actually <laughs> bad, now it's done. Bad listeners. They yeah. Were, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they, um, yeah, no, it was. And, and I think that, Part of the one of the one of the ways it gets recreated is that these characters who, especially for young men, these characters who have seem to have everything, seem to have a kind of complete autonomy. They don't care about other people because they're narcissists, right? They don't they don't care about anybody else, and that gives them a semblance of wholeness. And wholeness is one of the things. If you're like your, if you like your Lacan, it's one of the things that we seek: a sense of a sense of being less, um, less fragmented, less alienated, less. Right? And of course, that alienate. So I think of that alienation in, in in the terms of these characters, both in the Marxist sense, alienation through the kind of workings of capital, and alienation in the in the Freudian sense, in the, in the Lacanian sense of alienation on the, in the psychological level. And the, the ways in which that autonomy expresses itself is often in these narcissists' ability to kind of uh, manipulate and use anybody that comes in their, in their path. And there's something that, especially for young people, is very attractive about that. Mm. I think... Uh, you know, I had a friend for a while who would talk for a, a half an hour and then say, but enough about me. What do you think about me? You know, and I thought that was kind of charming and funny. And it's some it's very relaxing when you're a young person to be around a narcissist because you don't have time to worry about your own identity problems because they're taking up the whole room anyway. And you you can just bask in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, reflected autonomy. And so, uh, you know, as you get older, of course, you kind of see them coming down the hallway and you know steer steer clear but you know the uh, as as young people we, get, we i think we get swayed by by narcissists and that's the, you know how cults start it's how 
Right? So I think the kind of relationship they have, which on, on one level is confusing because it's not rational, mm-hmm. um, is very kind of human and normal, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Now, uh, so I'm curious, when you were younger, um, was that, I mean, it sounds like that was something you were drawn to. Were there people like that, that you felt that it was hard to extricate yourself from them who were just so, who, I mean, projected a kind of self-sufficiency or, or a kind of self-involvement that you just, you felt yourself drawn to that? I think when I was younger, everybody seemed more together than I was. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I walked around just a kind of like quivering mass of insecurity, mm-hmm. and so I, you know, so yeah, it was very easy for me to project some sense of that. Oh, this is a this is a model for being in the world. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would like to be this person. You know, a change that we don't quite see, sort of see Frankie have it. Mm. Frank, damn it, sorry, Frank, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, but when you suddenly realize, oh. I see what makes this person seductive, and I also see what makes this person dangerous. Oh, and yeah, and I, um, yeah. and that that's a kind of growth, right? That yeah, I, I yeah. Is that a tough? I don't want to get, get too, too personal. Maybe yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry. But, <laughs> no, I do. I do think that there's something about kind of learning your kind of your sexual being, mm. um, and the way in which seduction functions in both directions mm-hmm. for you as a, as a person and learning how to be responsible in that interesting and weird and wonderful thing. Yeah. That is the, the prime place of, at least for me, the prime place where I learned how to oh, be a responsible person. Uh-huh. Um, and it took longer than it should have. You know, I was, I was, I was married my entire life, mm-hmm. which is, kind of hilarious because I was really bad at it <laughs> for the first first half of that life. Um, and now, you know, just had my 25th anniversary. Um, oh, congratulations. Glory. But so you can kind of, I can kind of, I have a date for when the change was affected. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> it's, it's interesting too because in the, in the book, there's a lot about masculinity mm-hmm. and it seems like Frank had a terrible father. And then so he meets this person who is kind of crass and violent and it must feel familiar to him. Yes. And it's interesting because there's like quite a number of um, scenes in uh, strip clubs. Mm -hmm. And to me, like when I picture like relationships between men, something I often flash to is like, you know, you're with your guy friend at a strip club. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's often when men's relationship towards women or sexuality or, you know, women as objects really comes out. And so I always imagine this thing of like being a guy, being with your friend, seeing your friend start to act in a really disgusting way and and Mm -hmm. what your options are. And it's kind of like, it's almost an allegory for um, this like secret world of, you know, masculinity that I think as a woman, I've always wondered about. And I felt like that scene kept on coming up and up in this book. Um, where Frank is with Dimitri and Dimitri is, you know, doing disgusting things toward women. I mean, there's one scene where he basically like sexually harasses like a 13-year-old girl by painting very lurid pictures in front of her. Mm-hmm. And Frank knows it's bad, but he he doesn't say like, stop it, man. Or he, he kind of yeah. tries to stop it, but he doesn't say, it's this fascinating relationship that you paint. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. There's two things I'd like to say about it. One is that, that I, th- I do think that's a really important scene 
the, the strip club staff, I, you know, I played in a country band in Iowa for a number of years. And one of the places we played was the Red Stallion. We played at this, at the Red Stallion one weekend a month, every month, rain or shine. And it was connected to a strip club. It was the same owners. They had opened the country bar and the, and the strip bar at the same time. And the back of the, the kind of backstage was shared between the strippers and the, and the bands. Uh-huh. The guy who owned it owned a number of other clubs. We played at uh, some, a couple more country clubs. We played, played at some of those, but he owned uh, four strip clubs as well. And so in the, in the area in the greater Iowa area. I'm not exactly sure where the other ones were, but the, the women who danced would go, go from club to club to club. And so we ended up kind of showing up often with the same woman we had seen the, the month before because we were on the same four-week schedule hmm. to show up at the, at, the, at the bar again. And so, uh, you know, it be, they, were, they were people I worked with. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, people I got to know people like I, 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 so part of part of the kind of relationship that Frank has with Cindy, the the, the stripper who complains about her boyfriend to him. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and um, that's a that's that's part of the that's a, you know, out of it's a version of some relationship that I had or some combination of relationships that I had uh, during those years. And it was, you know, it was three or four years. So it was a you know a fairly long time. And I got to know the women who worked there. I, like I say, really well. And some worked very briefly and then were gone forever. And some worked for a while and were gone and came back and some stayed for a while. So, I, you know, I, I have a kind of um, kind of warm spot in my heart for the profession and for the people that work the profession. That, that, was, part, that was part of the reason why that's there. And then the, Frank's kind of inability to kind of lay his foot down, you know, to put his foot down. Um, and really kind of do something forceful is partly just a, a feeling of absolute impotence in relation to this guy, mm. um, which, you know, he's been trying to force the guy to just hammer his nails in at a reasonable pace, right? They're, they're building a house together. And and uh, Dimitri is a terrible worker and he can't get him to do that either, right? So it's a, his, in a, and what I tried to set up was that this kind of inability to make this big immovable object move mm-hmm. had a long history mm-hmm. before we see him unable to move him. Um, right. Even, even, even in the, in the strip club um, when he, when he starts a, a prostitution ring, basically. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it just, it's such a, it seems so telling to me. And um, like, if you had a friend who was, you know, going off on something super racist you know, it seems like it would almost be easier to confront them about that maybe than than something, you know, like, oh, you're going to start doing a prostitution ring. I mean, Frank is yes. saying, don't, man, that's that's not cool. Like, don't do that. And he gives him money so he won't have to do it. Right. But it, 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 I think that the book seems to show this way that it's so ingrained in our culture as not to even be something that is like a, you, you can't really stop it. Like it, 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 it seems like the 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 kind of sexual aspects of Dimitri's character um, are over overtake. They're like they're almost like I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah, they're, they're very strong. They're very strong, and uh, and and part of that is this kind of desire to kind of trade places, right? Mm-hmm. To be the desire to be that guy instead of trying to stop that guy. 
And part of it is that he, you know, he's, um, you say, you know, if you have a friend who's saying something racist, you, you say something. And, well, I, I find it's easier to correct an acquaintance than it is to correct a friend. Right, uh, of right. Uh, it's uh, correcting friends is really hard. Well, it's also a different situation, right? Because one of the things that seemed to be part of the relationship between Frank and Dimitri is that, as you said, Tom, like Dimitri enacts much of what it seems like Frank wishes he would enact. Mm-hmm. So instead of his impotence, you have this intense virility, and yep. the acting on impulse. Whereas Frank sometimes acts on impulse when when it comes yes. to the journalist let's say and Mm -hmm. moves to los angeles but is otherwise more inhibited um Mm -hmm. than dimitri is who has no inhibitions um and that dimitri sort of there's not there's not as much of a i think in that kind of situation with a friend let's say you don't have the desire to necessarily take that friend's place um whereas here there's a a competitiveness between the two yeah um yeah you know the um Frank wants so desperately to be taken seriously, mm-hmm. right? To be to be a real person in the world, and one of his little fantasies that he's got going, you know. I mean, I I love Frank's fantasies. You know, he's he decides that that Yuli wants to be rescued. Mm-hmm. This is Dimitri's he, wife, right? Yeah. yeah. He forgets to ask her whether she wants to be rescued. Yeah. And she very clearly does not want to be rescued, <laughs> and. and uh, you know, and uh, and he thinks that he's rescuing her as a, as as this kind of um, you know rescuing her from this you know horrible misogynist, um, unaware that the rescue fantasy itself is a, just another form of misogyny. right, you know, right. Like, yeah. 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 So it's just like I think that that his his misapprehension of his own life is mm-hmm. uh, I hope is comically yeah. satisfying. But um, the, I, the the one last thing I wanted to say about that is that his fantasy at the at the beginning of their relationship is that he's the older guy, mm-hmm. he is 28 and Dimitri is 18. And that's a significant difference at those, at those ages. And so he's going to be the teacher. Also, he knows about how to do a lot of carpentry and Dimitri, I mean, doesn't know anything. Uh, so he is the teacher and he's also a big reader. So he's reading all these books and he's sharing what he's learning from the books with Dimitri. So he feels like he's giving him a little education that way. And some of it he thinks of as a moral education as well. So, you know, he feels like a mentor, and that makes him feel like a, a, a grown man, mm-hmm. right? A grown person, and that makes him feel feel good. You know, it doesn't matter that it gets he gets dissuaded of it every other day or every day. You know, but he, but he it continues to function as a fantasy for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so actually, while well, on that, there are a lot of other books in this book. Yeah. Partly because Frank is such a reader. So, and one of the things that it seems difficult to me, particularly potential or potentially as a critic writing a novel, is the influence of other literature that would inevitably be, I think, sort of pressing into your mind constantly. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons it took me 50 years to write my first novel <laughs> is that, uh, you know, once I had read a bunch of great novels, you know, if you have Henry James on this shoulder and Toni Morrison on this shoulder laughing at you as you try to type your first pages, you know, yeah. it's really tough. So, um, and uh, when you have whole armies of novelists back mm-hmm. there, because you've read um, thousands of novels at this point, it can be very daunting. And I kind of solved that problem for myself by 
deciding that I wasn't swinging for the fences. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, I'm not writing the great American novel. I'm just writing a genre novel. I want to write a thriller. And I don't want to have to hide everything that I know uh, in mm-hmm. order to be a kind of close third relation to this character. Everyone, you know, at, at one point he was a first person character. I don't want to hide everything I know. So I made him a reader so that I could use some of that stuff. And the more I did that, the more it became fun for me to put, to kind of add a plot point here. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many of them you noticed, but the, you know, there's obviously there's third man stuff. There's big sleep stuff. There's, yeah. you know, there's, there's a, at one point Bartleby's boss says something um, uh-huh. uh, yep. in Frank's voice. Right. And so, you know, it's just like, there are, there are probably a hundred lines from the books that are mentioned in the book. That seems like a great solution to turn it into something fun yeah, rather than yeah. something daunting and scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so who, I, so I'm curious, who were the people that, you felt most affected this book or the writers that you felt most sort of, I mean, inspired by, or sort oh, of, even if yeah. they were laughing at you or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Well, Highsmith is one of them. Highsmith is, mm-hmm. is as high on the list. Uh, I loved that. I loved that. And, but, and, and I, I didn't do it here, um, but I, but I'd like to do it uh, in the, in one of the next ones is I love this kind of sense that the reader gets because the reader's, tied in with the with the character reader gets that they're just about to get busted mm-hmm. they're on the verge of getting busted right because tom ripley is always on the verge right. of getting, yeah. getting caught right and that way of keeping your reader on the edge of their seat i think is really fun and mm-hmm. uh, and so there was a that I, I tried to inject a little bit of that into this as well um uh the 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 standard la noir which is you know that's a stuff that i've taught uh, even when I was still there. at Iowa, I taught L.A. Noir classes. So the, Raymond Chandler and Hammett and all of those those guys. The Graham Greene has always fascinated mm. me, um, especially his comic ones like uh, Our Man in... in uh, I've never read that. Yeah. The Our one Man. Graham Greene novel that I've read is the, oh my God, the, the famous one. Oh. Uh, uh, the Catholic one. <laughs> Oh, they're all they're down. all they're all a little Catholic. That's <laughs> yeah. the problem. Um, yeah, I, my favorite is our man in Havana, in Havana uh-huh. where the, a guy is recruited by the CIA to to get to sneak into the jungle and get some the plans for some kind of hmm. military installation that's going on. This guy is a a um, vacuum cleaner repairman, and he has all sorts of different problems, and so he never quite gets around to going out to the jungle to. Oh, okay to look at the place and drop the plans and the CIA, but he's getting paid. The CIA guy comes to get hit the plans and he gives them a schematic for a, a vacuum cleaner, an electro, electronic schematic. Oh, that's funny. Cleaner. And yeah. It's that. So I wanted it. I wanted that, that kind of level of, of humor with a kind of real world um, mm-hmm. gloss. The time period, which, you know, starts before the financial collapse and right. then goes to after it. I'm, I'm wondering how closely you hewed to that as you were plotting out what happened. I mean, obviously, we kind of know what happened in a, in a general way, but also mm-hmm. because Frank is a contractor. So, so, mo- so much of the story kind of takes place on the housing market. Right. Um, if, if, that, if you did research to form that part of the story. Uh, yeah, I look. I, I I looked. I looked at it. I changed the timing a, a couple of different times, um, and uh, and 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 ended up more attached to my to my machinations than than history. I see. Uh-huh. Uh, so so you know so it doesn't track it that closely, but I think that and the way I justify that. <laughs> 
to myself is that, um, as, as Frank says, the one part of the housing market that didn't face a downturn was the high end suburban executive, executive suburb. Uh, he's, he's building houses in a, in a suburb of Hartford near the insurance capital, um, for a guy who insures nuclear power plants for a living. Uh, there's a, an insulation from yeah. the suffering of the average person, uh, much less the suffering of people around the world. And uh, I don't know if it's still in this draft or not. At one point, Dimitri says that he's going to Hong Kong because H- Hong Kong's going to hell. He's going to be working in Hong Kong and, and, uh, and everybody's leaving. And uh, you can make a lot of money, Frankie, if you go against the money. Mm. Right. So, um, so he's a, he's a guy that, that thrives on chaos and, uh, you know, as a person and as a financial, as an investor. Right. So. You mentioned that there were 53, uh, drafts of the novel and, mm-hmm. and you're such a, a really like gifted, amazing editor. What was it like? I mean, I'm sure you, you obviously have experience in this because you've written other books, but the thing in a novel, not self-editing too much, but then also, you know, being discerning as possible to make the prose as um, pert as possible. Talk about what that was like for you. Doing LARB made me a better writer. There's no question. I, I, th- I think it really, um, it, it, uh, there's something about editing that <laughs> focuses your attention. And of course I'd been teaching writing for years, uh, t- teaching and teaching literature for years. So I had been correcting student papers forever, but editing um, pr- professional writers is a, just ups your game to a new level and um, editing for publication ups your game to a new level and watching um, your editing get followed by really great copy editors and realizing how much you missed um, and mm. getting a little bit better at that each time. And, you know, so all of that was really great for my, my writing in general and for my ability to edit myself. You know, when I, I remember fighting with my editor uh, at Cornell University Press about my various passages in my first book, and, you know, in retrospect, they were completely right. But I was, I was so convinced that I needed this thing to be what it was, that I fought for it. And um, Lori, my wife, um, also uh, a larber for, yeah. for a while, um, uh, is, um, was a journalist. And so she was very used to getting edited. And I'd watch her kind of put in her theater review at, at 10 in the morning, get it back redlined uh, all over the place. Just accept it all, send it back <laughs> in, <laughs> and uh, and have lunch, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, and I thought, oh, okay, all right. Uh, editing is something that you that you take as a as a as an aid, and uh, and so I, I I kind of have have changed my relation to to editing and to my own and to editing myself. The I don't think you can over edit yourself. I mean, I think you can be afraid of letting your book go. Um, but I don't think you can really hurt your prose by working on it too much. I have, I, I don't think I still find sentences in my published books that I wish I, I could have back. Of course, mm. of course. But, but I mean, don't you have to also let go to be able to write in the first place? Yeah. You have to let go to get right in the first place and you have to let go in order to write the next book. Uh-huh. So, yeah. so, <laughs> so speaking of what's, what's your next book? So is there a next book? Is there a, oh, do you yeah, think this yeah. will be a series? Uh, Do you, are you going to come back? I, to this? I I I have a certain fondness for these 
If you can tell, I think I, people now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I'm thinking about a still slippy. Um, still. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, I I have I have I've started two other novels as well. Oh my gosh! Uh, but I, I just I just um, did my peer reviewers' notes on a on a little academic book. Okay. Uh, called Aimlessness: An Introduction. It's for Columbia University Press, and uh, it's coming out in the fall. Oh wow! Okay. And um, it's a, I think, a fun little book. Uh-huh. Very, a very, I agreed to do it based on showing them a sample of what I wanted to do, and it's completely collaged and kind of crazy. And some of the pieces are are a sentence long, and some of them are you know a couple of paragraphs. But it's all very mu- much a mix of you know talking about philosophers, mm-hmm. talking about my last trip to Mongolia. Because hmm. um, I'm talking about Gilles Deleuze's no, uh, notions of nomadicism, um, but I'm talking about that in relation to actual nomads. And so there's a whole Genghis Khan section, and then it turns out that Genghis is the name of the little robot in Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control that the guy makes in the Errol Morris film Fast, Cheap, oh. and Out of Control. Um, and so I, I just move from these all of these different registers and do it in a in a completely like like Errol Morris, do it in a complete collage form. Mm-hmm. And uh, they let me do it, so um, I I, I kind of love it uh, at the moment. Um, so that's done, and then I'm finishing the third volume of the travel series. Okay, I should think it'll be finished in in the next couple of months. Well, we'll let you go so you can get back to your oh yeah, your you. get your, back to your computer. <laughs> thank you so much, Tom, for being here. You bet, you bet. It was a pleasure. Thank and, you, Tom. And thank you for being the reason we're here. <laughs> thank, yes. thank you for being here. No, we're for all Laura. here. Uh, we've been speaking with Tom Letts. His new debut novel is Born Slippy. This episode of the LARB Radio Hour is supported in part by the California Arts Council, a state agency. Learn more at www.arts.ca.gov. Any findings, opinions, or conclusions contained herein are not necessarily those of the California Arts Council. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 